this morning we finished up the, the series on the I Am statements, and um, we're not pivoting totally away from there yet. This evening we're in Isaiah chapter 35. I believe that there is a strong connection between the passages that we have been going through, the I Am statements, and where we are this evening, and so I thought maybe we'd do a little bit of a middle road tonight, and then the next time, Lord willing, that I have the opportunity, we will branch out from there. Um, But again, we're in Isaiah chapter 35 this evening, verses 1 through 10. But before we go to the Word, let us say a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity again to be able to come into your house, to fellowship together, to sing together, to pray together, to hear your word together. I pray that as we read the text this evening, that it won't be any of our words, it won't be Ben's, it will be yours. I pray that you would work in it, that we may hear what you would have to say to us in your word. We know that your word never returns void. You were faithful to teach us, and so I pray that that would be done this evening. And in your name we pray, amen. So going to the text, starting with verse 1 of chapter 35 in the book of Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God. It is a hopeful word, a word of hope that we find here in Isaiah chapter 35. So Isaiah is one of the prophets. And the passage we read here this evening falls into that category of literature. This is prophecy. What we are reading is Isaiah, inspired by God, revealing to us something that will come to pass. This prophetic word has two fulfillments. We find its first in the incarnation of Christ, his ministry, death, and resurrection. However, this first coming is but a foretaste of its final fulfillment in the second coming. And so there are some eschatological truths that we can glean from this passage as well. So within this text, 
we find that life is being restored to both creation and to God's people, the redeemed. There's this sort of going back and forth, right? Where we read some of restoration granted to the land and then to the people, back to the land. And then finally, its focus shifts one final time to the people of God. So let's begin by looking at this back and forth. To begin, notice the condition of the land of creation prior to its blossoming. The land is essentially dead here to begin with. It is a wilderness of dry land. It is barren and nothing is growing here. It is a desert. The reality of the land being dry and as a desert is tied to an absence of gladness. The world is not functioning now here in Isaiah 35 as it is meant to. It was created to be fruitful and bountiful, but the land is dry. The land is cursed. Romans 8.22 states, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until Now, there is a groaning here in Isaiah 35. There is a deep and unfathomable pain, a future reality that is not yet realized, a reality for which creation longs. It wants it. And so it groans. Let it be over. But here in Isaiah 35, Isaiah tells us that there will be a day where there will be no longer any groaning. There will be gladness. And gladness here in Isaiah 35 is tied to meaning new life. It means gaining that for which it was designed and created. No longer will it be barren. No longer will it be dry land. No longer will it be a desert. It will instead blossom. And not merely just blossom, but blossom what? Blossom abundantly. There will be an overflowing. Isaiah 35 verse 2 then gives us a series of location names, doesn't it? It tells us The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. And then it says the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So the mentioning of these three locations represents a holistic flourishing and abundance. Lebanon was a heavily wooded area. Carmel can be interpreted, the name, as meaning roughly garden land and was a mountain in northern Israel, Mount Carmel. Sharon can be translated as a plain and was located... It's a location that was known for its plains, its prairies, its pastures, known for its fertility. The mentioning of these three locations, therefore, represents the fullness of life being restored to everything. To the forests, to the mountains, to the plain. Everywhere that was dead and dry and barren will be brought to life. And in this way, I think we can make comparisons of this passage to Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. In Ezekiel 37, we really won't examine that tonight, but I think it's, it's valuable to look at that and compare those two things. What Isaiah is saying here versus the vision that God gives to Ezekiel concerning bringing dry bones to life, right? Breathing life to where there isn't any. But going back to Isaiah 35, verse 2, what is the source of this life that has been given to the land? Notice that there are some words that are used twice in Isaiah 35, verse 2. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And then they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The glory of Lebanon, the glory of the Lord, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
the majesty of our God, this newness of life that will be given to creation, the rejoicing, the blossoming, the abundance, the joy, the singing, the glory, the majesty, all of those things will be found in creation that we do find there. We will find ultimately their source is the glory and majesty of the Lord God. It is a glory that is alien to the land. Apart from the life that is breathed from the life giver, the land would remain barren and desolate. It is only through the work of God that the land is alive again and functioning as it should. Thus the glory of God works in his creation, giving to it what it lacks, restoring it to abundance. And in this restoration, this newness of life, creation glories, reflecting the glory of its king in gladness and rejoicing. So we've, we've had this, this centralized focus upon the land, right? And now, coming out of verse 2, we have our first perspective shift. It shifts from the land to the people, which God is working in the people, the God that God is working to save. We read that God's people can be at peace and without fear in verse 3 because God is coming. And in what way is he coming? With vengeance, with recompense, to save. He is coming to set all things right. Creation groans and we groan with it. How long? O oh Lord, how long must the world languish under the yoke of sin, the tyranny of death, the hardship of sickness and brokenness? Our hands are weak, knees feeble, hearts filled with anxiety. Creation also is in a mode of weakness, too. It is not what it could be. It's not what it could be, and so we groan. But we are told here that we do not have to fear. He comes to save you. Additionally, we should not separate the truths of verses 3 and 4 from verses 1 and 2. The restoration of life that creation experiences in verses 1 and 2 that enables their rejoicing and their gladness that is received from the God who comes with vengeance, recompense, and to save. It's applicable the same way. The God who comes to save the people with vengeance, recompense, and to save, he comes in the same way to save all of his creation. Simultaneously, God's people who are told not to fear in verse 3 can be filled with gladness, as we find in verse 1 and 2 that the land is doing, rejoicing and singing, because we, the people, shall also see the glory and majesty of our God. Verses 5 and 6 move from the declaration that God comes to save his people to the afflictions that weigh upon human beings being undone. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will leap. The mute will sing. There is a foretaste of these things in the first coming of Christ, right? The blind did see. We know that they did. The lame did walk. And yet, the final realization of these truths still lies ahead of us. And until then, we grow. The curse that has rendered creation unable to be anything other than a dysfunctional mess, a desert in comparison to what it was made to be, has also robbed mankind of the fullness of what it means to be human. Some cannot see. Some cannot speak. 
Others can't walk or can't hear. And we could go on from there. We could expand that list. There's so many ways in which we are limited and brought low because of the condition of the world in which we live. And so our hearts are anxious. Our hands shake. We know fear all too well. But God's coming undoes the curse, both for his people and for the rest of creation. From there, we shift back to Isaiah detailing this restoration of creation. Waters will flow in the barren desert. The dry, choking sand will be covered by cool pools of water. The ground will have its thirst sated. And then in verse 7, as an aside, on Wednesdays, I know Tony, the last couple of weeks, he's been doing a study on strangeness in the Bible. And verse 7 here in Isaiah 35 falls into that category, I think. It uses the phrase, a haunt of jackals. Jackals being in the Hebrew, tanin. So in the English Standard Version, we interpret that as being the word jackals. But it's often, actually, often, it's translated as the word either serpent, sea serpent, or dragon. So it's, it's interesting, you know, maybe this Wednesday ask him about that, about dragons in the Bible. But in this world that God has made, there will be abundance. An alien glory will work to bring life where there is no life. And just as an alien glory that we read about in verses in verse 2, brings rejoicing newness and life to nature, the land, the world, and alien righteousness, the way of holiness, is what brings redemption and ransom to God's people. The way of holiness. We find that in verse 8. So to be holy is to refer to something that is set apart, to be distinct, to be other. If something is holy, if God is holy, that means he's not like us. He's something else entirely. He's someone else entirely. Okay, so hold on to that thought. Let's go a different direction. The desert was barren, right? There was no hope for the dead, dry land apart from the alien glory of God. I say alien because it is a glory that is not of Itself. It is a holy glory. Lebanon had no glory within of itself, and Carmel and Sharon were devoid of any majesty until it was given by the glory and majesty of God. It is a glory and majesty that is not their own. It is alien to those places. Apart from God's gracious giving, the land would remain dead. In the same way, God's people need something from the outside. Something external to themselves, they need the way of holiness. The way of holiness brings them to where they need to go. Zion, the presence of God. Now, I said it this morning, I'll say it again tonight. Let's get in the time machine. But we're going forward this time, not backwards. And like I said at the beginning, I, I think this, this passage here in Isaiah 35, it's a good middle ground between other parts of Scripture, and the I Am statements we find in the book of John. And so, to that end, we're getting in the time machine, and we're going to go 
forward to John chapter 14, verses 3 through 7. So here in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking with his disciples. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus is preparing a place for his disciples. And he will come again to get them so that, why? So that they can be with him. They can be together. So the disciples are trying to make sense of this. Thomas says, Lord, we do not where you we do not know where you were going. How can we know the way? Thomas is inquiring here in John 14 of the way of holiness. That's what he's talking about. He doesn't realize it by his own omission, right? We don't know where you're going. But Jesus' response to this question reveals that he is talking about the way of holiness that we read about in Isaiah 35. And in any case, what Thomas is wondering simultaneously reveals the truth of Isaiah 35 and its proper interpretation. It is not just, how do I get to Zion? How do I get to the kingdom where all will be made right? How do we lay hold of the promises found in Isaiah 35 and passages like it? No, it's, it's not just that. Thomas, in John chapter 14, he wants to know, how do I get to Jesus? To where he is going. Now when Thomas asks the question of Jesus. How do we get to to where you're going? We don't even know where you're going. He may be thinking like the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? Give me the special formula of things to do or not to do. And that will get me in. That will get me on the road and keep me on the road. And get me to where I have to go. Right? How do I find the way? How do I walk on it? How do I stay on it? You haven't told us yet, Jesus. And Jesus reveals to him how to get to himself and simultaneously reveals the key to Isaiah 35. Jesus said to him in John chapter 14, we know it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. So, let's go back now. Let's turn back to Isaiah 35. Now looking at verses just 8 through 10. I'll read it again. Verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thomas wanted to know, how do I get to you, Jesus, wherever you were going? How do I get to the place where you are preparing rooms for your friends? How do I stay on the way? How do I not get lost? What if I'm on the wrong way? But Thomas misunderstands, and I think we can easily make that same mistake here in Isaiah 35. We can think of the way of holiness as 
something we have to find, right? A moral code, a way in which we must live. You can probably dress it up in, in some really pretty Christianese. But that's probably, you know, a way that I think it's very easy to read, okay, the way of holiness. Because probably when they first read that in Isaiah's day, they may have been thinking, okay, I have to become holy by adhering to something. And if I go off the path, I'm gone. I have to stay on the way. Jesus flips the script in John 14. Thomas, you don't have to find a way. I am the way. Jesus is the way of holiness in the same way that Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is simultaneously the shepherd who leads the sheep and also the door through which the shepherd leads the sheep to find pasture. Jesus is the way and he is the destination. The way of holiness is Christ. Way, truth, life. He is the shepherd who directs the way of the redeemed and makes certain the steps of even the fool. He is the way, the path that must be walked. He is holiness itself. And the saving that the way of holiness brings is a kind of saving that calms anxious hearts, stills shaking hands, puts away the constant fear because the way is holy. Nothing unclean can touch it. The alien righteousness of God cannot be corrupted by evil. The same Christ who sat and ate with sinners and tax collectors, who was betrayed and killed by all the evils of earth and hell, he is unfaced and he brings salvation for his people. He comes to get you. He takes you on the way, all the way home to himself. So Jesus and John tells us that he has prepared rooms for the disciples. There is a room for you, a specific room for you. One day you will be going to it. Jesus will return. The way of holiness will appear in the clouds, and he will call his people to himself, and his people will go with him on the way, this way of holiness to that heavenly city where we will be with him for eternity. His word is unbreakable, and this is what he has spoken to you. Do not fear, Isaiah 35, verse 8, tells us that even the fools won't be able to get lost, so even guys like me are covered. To close, in in verse 10, we find the culmination of the promise. The ransomed people of God will return. There is no question. Everlasting joy upon their heads as anointing oil. They will come to Zion. They will come to Christ. He has prepared many rooms. The one who is holy, the one who has a glory and righteousness all his own, He gives himself to us as the way to where he is, where we will have gladness and joy with him forevermore. Amen.